The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Implicit Bias, The Negative Impact, hosted by Michelle Stewart-Copes and Marie Spivey. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance at winning a $100 gift card. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Marie Spivey, and I'm a principal with SEEK Consultants. Those, those wonderful letters stand for Education, Equity, and Transition. And I work primarily with uh, Michelle Stewart-Copes, and she'll talk with you in a little while. I just want to say that acquiring a better understanding of the topics of biases implicit, unconscious, or explicit, gives us the opportunity and understanding to think before we speak in better tones of respect and humility. Michelle and I have worked together for several years now on the training and education for local community-based organizations, for state departments and agencies, and have worked nationally with other states to develop and collaborate on work that is truly intended to eliminate healthcare disparities and enable communities to better understand the wealth of the assets diversity brings to all of our daily lives. But I just wanna mention before Michelle begins to talk with you, I just want to mention some of the other trainings we offer in addition to implicit bias education, such as community assessment and family engagement, uh, board, board of directors orientation and policy development class, or the enhanced national culturally and linguistically appropriate standards and their impl implementation, how to implement those standards and the federal adherence and strategic planning to conduct self as well as organizational assessments. So with that said, Michelle? As a community organizer and a social worker, I'm so glad to be able to talk about the negative impact of implicit bias. The goal of this session will help us all to understand how to minimize the negative harmful impact of implicit bias in our organizations and healthcare, with our families and in the community. As consultants with SEAT, we have witnessed a prevalence of bias in mental health and addiction and work with people of color. So we need to increasingly understand how our increasingly diverse population really needs to have attention paid to their needs in order to improve businesses, to build quality care, and to effectively meet individual needs. So as we go through the learning objectives for today, we want you to be able to define and address implicit and unconscious bias. We want you to learn the negative impact of personal implicit biases and strategies to minimize subsequent negative behavior and want you to become more aware of your own biases, your own stereotypes, your own attitudes and personal agendas, and will build understanding for the negative impact on behavioral health. Michelle? Implicit bias are attitudes and stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions, our decisions, and more importantly, our practice. It happens unconsciously and it's automatic. Everybody has biases, even judges. They may not align with our beliefs. So even if we declare that we are definitely not a racist, we don't have a prejudice bone in our body, we must understand 
that we all have implicit bias. Marie? So when we talk about unconscious bias, we're saying biologically we're hardwired to prefer people who look like us and sound like us and share some of our own interests. We sort people into preferred groups unconsciously and consciously. Social psychologists call this phenomenon social categorization which is natural people preferences. Our body language sends subtle messages all the time. We need to understand how quickly people read our body language. In the first three seconds of every interaction, people are reading our body language and categorizing themselves. We are communicating with people, even if we're not saying anything to them. So we have to understand what happens with our body language and how people perceive us. So in doing that, we need to understand all the dimensions of people. We'll show you all of the dimensions of our diversity and all of our differences. There are primary dimensions of diversity. This is the essence of your identity. It's the characteristics that you typically cannot change or alter. So we should never consider sexual orientation or gender identity as a phase someone just is going through. These are inborn differences that affect their entire life. The secondary characteristics on the outside are things that you aspire to, your interests that often change during life phases. They affect us as individuals. It affects your worldview and how others view you. So going back to the primary dimensions, our gender identity is our innermost sense of who we are as male or female, neither or both. So it's really important for us to look at our pronouns when we're thinking about gender, because many people will identify as bi-gender and gender fluid. So if we're going to be inclusive, we really make sure that we use the pronouns such as they, them, theirs, or themselves. And looking at the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual population, we need to understand that there are so many differences there. That's 10% of our population formally, but I think there's so much more because a lot of people have not identified. The Department of Health and Human Services are saying that everyone should identify sexual orientation and gender identity at intake. Sexual orientation is who you are emotionally and sexually attracted to. And then we have race, which is a social categorization of people based on skin color differences and geographic orientation. Ethnicity is about your group affiliation, your language, your dress, your religion, your traditions that you celebrate. This is not genetic. It's learned. So if you have an East Indian baby that's adopted by an African-American family, that baby will be East Indian. So all of these are the dimensions of our differences. And if we could just realize that we need to look at people holistically, we can really move beyond our biases and boxing people into categories. So then let's look at the impact of unconscious bias. And this really gets into how unconscious bias negatively impacts us in the workplace or in other environments. It can really make our environment toxic with bad behavior, with hurt feelings, with micro inequities where people are feeling isolated, overlooked, a lack of self 
self-worth, feeling marginalized or patronized, and it can lead to poor retention and hurt feelings. I want to say a little bit more about the uh, oppressive language. Um, this, this really represents violence or limited knowledge. By calling someone else out and challenging someone, you can actively work against behaviors and ideologies that are racist, that are sexist, homophobic, or elitist, etc. Oppressive terms or words are any that uses an identity or identifier of belonging to a certain group, a class, or race, or sexuality, or ability, or gender, having a negative or undesirable quality. When people use this kind of language, they aren't just harming an individual, but they're contributing to a history or subjugation and oppression that has spanned generations. We see that negative consequences come out of all of the biases that we, we continue to push forward. We look at underutilized talent, impaired recruitment and retention in your workplace, poor performance, stifled innovation and growth, and poor teamwork and collaboration. And we just can't afford that in the businesses that we have, whether it's healthcare or business or education, any other area. Uh, Michelle? With subconscious bias, we have to understand how 90% of what we do is unconscious. And on the next slide, you can see that all of the things that happen when we are really not conscious of all of the things that our behavior is doing. And this is neuroscience. So much lies beyond our conscious awareness. And Marie will talk more about that as far as what's going on in our brain. Yeah, I just want to, because I'm a registered nurse, and uh, worked in the operating room on brains as well as heart and other parts of the body. Uh, the brain always is very important to me to think that we are so far away from knowing everything about our brain. Our brains form biases by using knowledge about social situations or attitudes or cultures, or stereotypes, emotional reactions, and a whole lot more. We learn through our experiences. We learn through media and interactive occurrences throughout our lives that unconscious biases can skew your judgment for much of your life. By learning more about the implicit and unconscious biases you may have, because we all have them in some form or other, you will learn to strengthen your ability to make fairer, more informed decisions about how to speak with people and interact with those who you recognize as having differences from yourself and or those you have associated with for much of your life. So you see there the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. Michelle, do you want to talk a little more about that? You can really see how people may be confused about what biases they have because they are unconscious, but we really have to think about them, do self-reflection to do a self-critique because we all do have biases. And a lot of times we may be subject of blind bias, of blind spots, not knowing what our biases are. So let's really do a better job of self-reflection and self-critique. So explicit biases, they're known biases, they're conscious biases. And individuals may choose to conceal them for the purpose of social and political correctness. And let me just tell you a few other kinds of biases that we all know and talk about and see. For example, affinity biases. They're people who share qualities with you or someone you like or admire. Attribution bias, how you perceive your actions and those of others. 
our, our brain's flawed ability to assess the reasons for certain behaviors that lead to our accomplishments, our skills, our personality, our successes or external factors, such as hindrances that we believe are beyond our control, maybe our failures. And here we can blame ourselves or find fault with ourselves. And then there are the gender biases and preferences we internalize about gender roles that may cause us to lean toward a person because of their gender or away from them because of how you have inadvertently favored one gender over another. So explicit bias can really do a lot of damage. And if you see on the next slide, there are so many areas of our brain that can get triggered. We are biased against people with mental health problems, with intellectual disabilities, with addiction, with disabilities that are physical that we see with race, with culture. And we know that more people are discriminated against because of their class, because of poverty, more than a lot of other different types of biases. So we really need to pay attention to how we get triggered and how we do damage and how the negative impact can really be cumulative as far as having people be subjected to depression and anxiety. I want to talk about cognitive dissonance. This is when people hold such strong core beliefs that even when new evidence is presented, they can't accept it or believe it, even if it's not true. So they will rationalize and ignore the evidence and hold on to that belief, even if it's false. This is how conspiracy theories prevail. This is how bigotry and white supremacy can flourish. Marie will talk about how we are susceptible. So when we uh, when we think about when we are most susceptible, you can you can put yourself in these these situations and these places when there's high pressure situations, when there are emotional states, and we go through emotional states so many different kinds every day. When there's ambiguity and judgment, when there's a lack of opportunity for feedback, and that we know happens in most situations, particularly for people of color. Low effort, cognitive processing. And when we're angry or when we're afraid, Michelle? So it's really important for us to look at how we chunk information into schemas. It's so important for us to understand how we organize information, how we place ideas with our cognitive impressions. This is how we can associate, say, Black males with violence or with being criminals, how this can turn into a stereotype, into conscious and unconscious bias into our overt and into our inadvertent behavior. You will see how that plays out into these different impressions, schemas that attack our brain. Like, I fear you. I'm uncomfortable with you. you. I think you're a criminal. I think you might be aggressive. I think you're a thug. I don't trust you. You make me angry. I'm afraid of you. D.L. Hughley had talked about how the most dangerous place for Black people to live is in a white person's imagination. And Van Jones says that I feel like I'm always on trial. My skin says I'm threatening. 
But I find that the world is a threatening place for me to be in. So it's really important to understand how a Black male may feel in this world and in this climate. Bias often segues into prejudice, discrimination, and racism. These are the micro and macro dimensions of racism. You can see some of the symptoms of internalized racism depicted in the top left graph. Many individuals that have been marginalized or stigmatized because of their race or ethnicity may feel overwhelmed. They may feel a lack of worth, a lack of intelligence. Many people with mental health difficulty feel this poor self-worth. On the bottom left, you'll see a portrayal of interpersonal racism. This is between individuals in the community, privately or on the job. This can be perceived as or the result of unconscious bias or implicit bias. Remember, everyone's perception is their reality. Then you go to the top right where you see institutionalized racism, racism within an organization where people may feel excluded or victimized because of the system of power or people may be subjected to unfair eligibility guidelines, not promoted because of unjust criteria or prejudice or racism. And then we have that structural racism, which is across institutions and among institutions. And this results because of unjust policies, unjust procedures that are grounded in our history. There's been a lot of redlining historically, and it has resulted in poor housing, dilapidated housing, inadequate housing, the lack of access to neighborhoods, to healthcare, to insurance, and to employment. So we really need to look at how we are impacted by all of this, by the racism, by the prejudice. It shows the spears of racialization. We must look at how we need to personally look at ourselves and to really look at how we can address our personal bias and our orientation to race if we are going to effectively address and minimize bias and institutionalize racism. So look at, again, how we may internalize racism, our beliefs about ourselves, about other individuals, including all of the stereotypes types that we may feel about ourselves, about our colleagues, or about others, or the threat to our safety. And this impacts how we interpersonally deal with people on the job, in our communities, and in the workplace, how we interact with bigotry and implicit bias. These are all places that we can make a difference if we realize what's happening within us and among others, and really try to make a positive difference. We can see institutionalized racism and bias in our institutions when we're looking at guidelines, policies, and practices in our behavioral health organizations, in our schools, and in our health organizations, in our hospitals, and then look at what's happening among institutions with these structural policies, with systemic racism that we hear so much about that's impacting housing, employment, insurance, 
and those larger entities that impact our mental health, our behavioral health, our well-being. Let's really try to make a difference in this world so that people can live in equity. So let me just back up for a couple of minutes about we want to be sure that you know where some of the support has come from in our government or not. The class standards or the cultural and linguistically appropriate standards are related to the federal civil rights laws. For example, the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1994 says, No person in the United States shall, on the grounds of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving financial assistance. And this is something that hospitals and healthcare organizations really are trying to do what they know that they need to do. The Rehabilitation Act of 1973, sections 501 and 505, protects employees and job applicants from employment based on disability. And Title 42, Chapter 21 of the U.S. Code, prohibits discrimination against persons based on age, disability, gender, race, national origin, and religion in a number of settings including education, employment, public accommodations, federal services, and more. And on the next slide, we see that Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act in 2010 says a couple of things. The law prohibits discrimination by any federal health program, including all operations of an organization or activity, as well as their subcontractors on the grounds of race, color, sex, age, disability, or national origin. But under the new final rule, the Office for Civil Rights no longer defines health program or activity to include employee benefit programs under Section 1557. This change dramatically limits the scope of non-discrimination protections for health insurance products. So culturally, a little bit more about the class standards, um, just just to make sure that you understand what what this means in terms of culturally and linguistically appropriate standards. The national or enhanced national class standards are norms and guiding principles intended to advance health equity, improve quality, and help to eliminate healthcare disparities in health outcomes among the different segments of the population groups throughout the United States. Michelle and I do this work with state organizations, local organizations, um, and we've worked nationally with organizations, as I mentioned in the beginning of her presentation, um, a lot with class standards um, and have actually brought people together in different regions throughout the country. The design of these standards may also help the strategic planning process of educational institutions, um, not only in health institutions, but as in business models in religious alliances and any other organizations to identify their own goals, their own objectives and challenges, their current status, and then the evaluation of the work of their services going forward. Michelle? So it's so important for people to understand that discrimination is against the law. 
we need to understand the process of how bias can lead to prejudice and discrimination. So really, let's make sure that people understand the intent of the class standards and also make sure that people are aware of the class standards. Marie and I have found that many professionals don't even realize that the federal law is built into the class standards and the class standards are expressing what needs to come out of the Office of Minority Health so that we can have equitable health. So let's really look at how we can build relationships with people from other cultures in order to address bias and equity and to really be able to make sure that we can work to minimize and eliminate health disparities. Let's listen to people, stories, understand them from the aspect of their narrative of who they are. Let's ask people open questions, notice differences in communication styles and values. It's important for us to examine our own bias. It's important for us to know our own culture so that we can appreciate other cultures. Let's learn how to be a better ally to people by advocating for their preference and their values and how they want to be treated and need to be treated and where they need to go to really be able to achieve their well-being the way they describe their well-being. Let's make a conscious decision to establish friendships with people from other cultures and put ourselves in their shoes, really put ourselves in situations where we can experience other cultures and to be able to learn from others. And that's cultural humility, understanding how much we do not know and allowing others to educate ourselves. Marie? So what we've been talking about throughout this presentation is how do you how do you overcome your implicit biases? You can do this by developing the ability to be self-observant. So selective attention, overcoming biases by including a variety of experiences, expertise, and points of view in friends and work groups and teams. You'll you'll receive numerous unexpected benefits and perspectives. And this will increase initiative thinking and, and innovative thinking and productivity. We see how overcoming your implicit biases will bring out the truths and the beliefs that you've learned and overlap into the knowledge that you now have. And how to do that? To develop the ability to be self-observant. You'll actively doubt your objectivity. Be mindful of snap judgments before you open your mouth. Oppose your stereotype thinking. Deliberately expose yourself to counter-stereotypical models and images. And engage in relationships with those who are different from you, as we've said many times throughout this presentation. Seek out cultural and social situations that are challenging for you. And develop empathy to view things from others' perspectives. As Michelle just said, put yourself in other people's shoes and find commonalities. Michelle? I like when we're looking at really looking at commonalities with people, a lot of times we can only do that when we talk about our differences. If we are brave enough to talk to someone who is different and to talk about our differences and our values, we will find commonalities and similarities with each other. And that's what selective attention is all about. Coming out of our comfortable social circle, intentionally going beyond what makes us comfortable, moving ourselves beyond our comfort zone, and really finding ways to talk about 
how we are similar and how we really can bond around things that we both feel very strongly about. This starts building inclusivity. We need to foster that in the workplace. Yeah, I just want to mention that there's uh, the quote that is one of my favorites from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And I think that's so so important, important, especially today. When we foster a culture of mutual support, people feel included and they are able to really be able to bring their issues into the workplace and feel comfortable in talking about them. A lot of people talk about courageous conversations in order to talk about bias and discrimination or our perceptions. We really need to feel comfortable to do that. So let's really try to foster that in the workplace by just sharing of ourselves, how we feel, making I statements so that people can really know our perceptions and we are able to listen to their perceptions because that is everyone's reality. We need to create an organizational culture that is really going to be visible to the invisible measures of diversity so that people can feel more comfortable in speaking and talking about themselves and will feel a sense of belonging. So many organizational missions speak to this. So let's exemplify our mission by making sure that we are including everyone. Marie and I work a lot with organizations with developing diversity, equity, inclusion policies. You should start with looking at diversity, equity, inclusion planning. And a lot of people will do that when they talk about health equity and developing health equity plans. Just look at that picture and and think about it for a second. We are all one, but different different but the same and that that to me means we're all human beings we are human beings but underneath is all red blood so we're different but we are the same because our cultures are different our culture right now in this particular situation that we're talking about that's a culture and as we go out into life with your family with your communities those are different cultures and so the appreciation that we need to have for everyone and treat everyone with respect is so important in order for us to grow into healthier communities. So how do we how do we really acquire these culturally responsive skills and what do they do for us? They demonstrate that we have the ability and the motivation to ask open questions. We demonstrate the ability and motivation to respond to questions, develop surroundings and conditions that facilitate culturally responsive dialogue. And I just want to say something quickly about the uh, pandemic that we're in. Over time, Black Americans, Latinas, Indigenous tribes have received the COVID-19 vaccines at dramatically lower rates than white Americans, even as the chaotic rollout uh, reached more people to get to them, to get to them and to be healthier human beings. Black Americans are being left behind due to barriers stemming from structural racism, as well as a failure to address nuanced hesitancy and mistrust about the vaccines and medical system overall. We need urgent solutions to address health inequities and the disparities 
to crush not only this pandemic, but multiple variants that are already here in the United States, popping up in most of our states throughout the country. So we must come together. We must take care of each other. And we must make sure that we are passing on good, reliable information from the science and and believing that we can do this. As Marie and I are ending this presentation, we want to wish all of you Godspeed in your journey to embrace equity and eliminate bias. As Gandhi says, let's all be the change that we want to see in this world. During the inauguration, Amanda Gorman had talked about, for there is always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. Let's be brave enough to really look at our current circumstances and really become an ally so that we can achieve equity in this world. Thank you so much for your time and all of your future endeavors. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.